I'm Joyita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. The year was 1997. The location was the National Museum in New Delhi, India. The exhibit was comprised of dozens of antiquities on loan from the British Museum to celebrate 50 years of Indian independence. And there I was, the only blind person in the room. I only wanted to get a little closer to get a better look. So I leaned ever so carefully closer to the ancient Greek bust perched on its plinth. To this day, I couldn't say exactly how I managed to brush up against the pedestal. What I do remember is the sharp intake of breath from a room full of people, all watching in horrified fascination as the 3,000-year-old artifact wobbled precariously on its perch, before finally going still. Disaster averted. Today, we discuss inclusive museums and art galleries. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Welcome to The Pulse. I'm Joita Gupta. It's uh, really good to be with you today. It's not every day that I get to share a personal anecdote, particularly one that is in equal parts embarrassing and amusing. What we're going to do on today's show is try and avoid situations like this and find out how museums and art galleries could be made a little more accessible to people with disabilities in order to ensure that it is a welcoming experience for people from all backgrounds. My guest today is Melissa Smith. Melissa is Assistant Curator of Access and Learning at the Art Gallery of Ontario. She's also offering an online course this fall that will help to talk through some of the concepts about a multi-sensory museum experience. She joins us today to talk about some of her work, including the course that she's offering this fall from her home in Toronto. Melissa, welcome to The Pulse. It's really great to have you on the program. Oh, I'm so pleased to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to have a conversation about how museums can be more accessible because I fundamentally believe that it's a human right and that they're wonderful places where we can explore what we've done, what we're doing and how great we can potentially be. So, Melissa, you you heard about how I got into thinking about inclusive museums and art galleries. Uh, Hopefully you didn't have a brush with a 3000 year old artifact. Tell me a little bit about what turned you on to these ideas about making museums and art galleries just a little more inclusive. Well, I think I was very lucky in that um, my parents and the schools that I went to exposed me to museums very early on, and I always felt that they were kind of special. I also grew up during the time of maybe now a problematic film series, Indiana Jones, but there was a certain amount of um, magic around that. And, you know, in museum studies and art history, we often talk about the erratic quality or an aura that an object can have. And I think that that expands our way of learning and engaging with the past and again, as I've said, the future. So it's really important to me that we provide as much access in an inclusive way to that, um, to those structures. And I think it's also a really amazing way to decolonize and to deconstruct systems to really better understand how we can engage in a future that's, that's more inclusive. 
So I'm really glad you brought up decolonizing. It's actually one of those things that I had intended to talk to you about, and we'll come back to that later on in the program. But for now, you are offering a number of workshops this fall. What can you tell us about them? Sure. Yeah. So there's kind of a, there's two things running parallel. So I do a lot of programming in my role at the AGO where it really is about lowering any perceived or physical barriers to the collection. So I work uh, with a team to really discover ways that we can create um, dynamic audiovisual descriptions of the artwork in the collection. In the before times, you could also attend for a tour where we would engage with objects that we had produced as 3D translations or um, audio narratives, sense, things to really create multimodal embodied ways of engaging with the objects. And we also had a list of works where you could actually engage with a guided touching. And the other thing that I do on the side is also um, as a sessional instructor at OCAD-U, and the course that I teach is called the Multisensory Museum. And it's really meant to be a learning community where we all come together, so inclusive designers, or rather designers who want to become inclusive designers, and folks from the community um, who identify as being blind or vision impaired. And we try and co-create and co-design ways to counteract um, you know, the, the kind of ocular centric or the really focus on visual in museum objects and particularly in art galleries. So the students really work through finding dynamic ways that are really represent the object or the artwork that are loyal to that in ways that also make them accessible. So Melissa, you're doing these these workshops, you're offering them virtually. Tell us a little bit more about what you're planning to cover as part of this learning series. What I'm doing is I'm setting up experiences during each of those sessions where students are able to learn about the museum field, which you know is, is a thing, and then also learning about inclusive practices. So you can expect, for instance, having um, a more didactic lecture about the history of museums, but really through the lens of how do we create multisensory experiences and what have been the accessibility strategies that have been used. And we do that specifically to critique and to create a foundation for what we can envision in the future. We also have an audio description workshop where we're working with a fabulous audio describer, um, Kat Germain, who comes and works with the students to really um, inform and train on how best to, to engage in that practice. Uh, because the goal of this particular course is to produce videos that we can then host on the AGO um, platform to support the students and also to create access to artwork in our collection, we'll also have a media producer, a sound person. Um, we also have other folks from different museums um, in Toronto. So we'll have Courtney Murfin, uh, who also does a bit of work at the ROM, and, and also Theran from the AGO, who does some work for our digital media team. So it's trying to bring together lots of different facets of how this work is done internally and thinking about ways to make that more inclusive. You know, one of the things I've heard with a lot of courses that I've taken, you know, say at the University of Toronto is you've got to have some prerequisites before you can take the course. So in terms of the course that you're offering, are there any prerequisites? Who can get involved? Do you need any prior experience? Well, we're really looking for people with lived experience um, who identify as being blind and vision impaired so that we can create a learning community. It's really about nothing for us without us as well, right? So um, we're looking to really find and create solutions. And I believe, you know, that's another way to kind of decolonize the education um, system is really bringing people that have as much lived experience as potentially academic 
I think for me, what I'm looking for is people to reach out directly to me so that we can have a conversation and make sure it's the right fit. Um, because it is, you know, we're asking folks to volunteer to, to share that with students and then to, you know, co-create and develop those elements to make uh, space a bit more accessible. I would imagine that as you offer this training, there are no doubt some challenges associated with taking a training that was offered in the quote unquote real world and making it virtual. But beyond those challenges, as you try to communicate some of these concepts to participants in the training, what are some of the challenges for you? Because I would imagine that everyone has grown up with some very fixed notions about what a museum is supposed to look like and feel like. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting. And I think that's what's um, been really noticeable during the pandemic, how we all kind of agree that change is important and thinking about things in an inclusive way. But we've all been, to a certain extent, super brainwashed by the past. And so it's to me, it's sometimes the challenges of people really digging their heels in and not realizing that they're doing it almost. Um, so it can be difficult to explain, for instance, why we need to have QR codes at every audio described label, um, instead of just at the front of the exhibition in case someone has missed it, they don't have to go all the way back to the start. Right. So there's elements like that, that are interesting and particularly in museums and galleries, because we work a lot in such an ocular centric place, sometimes aesthetics can be prioritized. So those are some of the challenges we face along with. Um, the notion of, of where funding is coming from, because often, you know, we're also not-for-profit organizations um, that are unionized and, and pay for staff. So that can sometimes be um, forgotten because, you know, if you hear AGO or um, ROM or any other larger institution, um, people often think that there's lots of resources behind that. And that's not always the case, and particularly after a pandemic. And I think the thing I'm really thinking about is uh, how we're going to go back. And currently in our space, just to be able to welcome people in, we've had to create a no-touch um, environment. And so I'm really keen to think through how we can get back on site and start hosting tours again in a way where that's not lost. Um, so those are like, you know, the top three challenges. <laughs> I want to ask you a little bit about web accessibility. Now, um, if you work in web accessibility, and I've misunderstood the situation, and, you know, at, and you're listening at home, hey, please call me out on it. But generally with web accessibility, I get the sense that there is a checklist. There's a couple of things that you can do to make your website more accessible. When it comes to something like inclusion and accessibility in, an, in a gallery space or at a museum, how much are you relying on checklists and how much of that process is intuitive or conceptual or dare I say it even creative? No, I think that's such a great question because I think that that's also it comes into some of the the work that's done in accessibility where we're often just checking a box. Right. So certainly for a very long time in museums and particularly in Ontario, it's been all about AODA and what's been established by that legislation. What I like is when we're able to go further and when we're able to engage with community members from the start so that we can really build in a co-creative way. Um, and then it becomes much more relational and much more important about lived experience and, and knowledge 
rather than just kind of doing these these checks, checking of boxes, which I, I find is really rudimentary. So that's what's exciting about being able to engage in this kind of learning community aspect is that we can get really creative, we can prototype, we can figure things out so that then when we're able to implement it back into the museum, it's much easier, right? So to me, it almost and you know, I don't want to give it airs, but it becomes almost this kind of think tank to be able to overcome the real world design challenges and almost becomes a lab for thinking through things in a creative way. So as we sort of wind up the first segment of our program, Melissa, tell us a little bit about whether we have to pay to attend these workshops that we've been chatting about today and how we go about registering for them. No, no. In fact, I would prefer to be able to pay an honorarium, but um, at, as it stands right now is for budget, it's uh, it's free to participate if you'd like to. And it's really about reaching out to me through uh, my email address, which is melissa.smith at ago.ca. Yeah. And it's we're really looking for people to commit for the entire experience just because that way we get to know one another and uh, we can really be open and think through these real world design challenges together. I'm Joita Gupta, and my guest today is Melissa Smith, the Assistant Curator of Access and Learning at the Art Gallery of Ontario. Melissa, we're having a lot of conversations today about making museums and galleries accessible. I'm gonna ask you a slightly controversial question. Tell me to what extent do you think the very act of creating a multi-sensory experience at a museum, doing things like audio description, for example, to what extent would you say those things can constitute art? Oh, that's a great question. I think absolutely when it comes to designing a program that tries to embody the experience, it really requires a lot of thoughtfulness. And there's also a lot of thinking through which artworks are chosen for that experience. So I would say there's definitely a creative element. And certainly when it designing an audio description, which we sort of refer to sometimes as a creative audio description. And I love that, you know, to a certain extent, too, when we're together in a group and trying to do that and communicate the artwork, it almost becomes performative because there's a lot of back and forth, a lot of question and answer as well that I often find creates really um, beautiful moments of trying to connect around communication and understanding. And often people bring in their lived experience. And it's, I think it's actually really a beautiful thing when we're able to join together and do that work. You know, a lot of people will not question it. They'll say, yes, Van Gogh is art, Picasso is art. But when it comes to art forms that are a little less conventional, shall we say, people tend to meet that with a lot of skepticism or dismissiveness even, oh, this isn't art. Do you think that in having a, a conversation about opening up the museum and gallery experience to people, uh, to patrons of all abilities, we're also simultaneously opening up a conversation about what art is and who an artist is? What are your thoughts? Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I think that that's part of what we're sort of talking about in that decolonization is that you know, hierarchies, uh, taxonomy, systems of understanding were really put in place in the Enlightenment. And so that's where we get this kind of notion of high art, low art. And I certainly feel as we move forward, um, rethinking the way that we engage with the world, that those binaries, which don't really exist, it becomes more of a, a you know, more of a spectrum. And I think that 
also in that work, it's about creating space to hear a lot of different perspectives rather than sort of a mono narrative or, you know, an informed or academic perspective. It's also about the fact that art and the things around that arts and culture in general, those are things that we're all equipped to comment on and to engage in and to have conversations about. Um, and so the more perspectives that are brought forward, the more we're going to see the truly amazing things that we produce as humanity in a way of communicating who we are and what we're going through in the world. One of the things I've been saying pretty consistently throughout the program is, you know, our, it's it's all about making museums and art galleries accessible to visitors from all backgrounds. But isn't it true that the mission and mandate of museums and art galleries extends far beyond simply providing a welcoming visitor experience. How do you think that some of the work that you're doing around making um, museums, et cetera, accessible feeds into that larger mission and mandate for an art gallery or for a museum? Well, it's interesting because, you know, the history of museums really come out of um, elitist collections of like wonder crammers or cabinets of curiosities where very wealthy people would try and kind of represent the world around them. And through the history of that, it was then about giving those collections to the public for the for the greater good, right? So that's where we see places like the Ashmolean, the British Museum, even the Louvre after the French Revolution become accessible to the public. And then really after that point in the 20th century, we see it shift to this really certain education kind of theme. So needing to inform the public about the past and about these narratives that we've produced with imagery and with objects. And uh, I think it's important to consider how we can push that out and really ensure that we're not only keeping the objects in perpetuity, which is usually what uh, a museum's goal is, is to keep those objects so that we can talk about the world and have people come and learn about the world, right? And so how do we do that so that it's also not just one person's perspective, but multiple perspectives about that world and undo the really the colonial aspect of museums, if we think even about the British Museum and the Elgin Marbles, which is the most famous example, that many of those objects have been acquired in kind of dubious situations. So I think it's, you know, there's bigger conversations about restitution, there's bigger conversations about um, provenance, all of those elements, and also really thinking about the art world and the collecting world and how that works and how we can decolonize that as well. But for me, the reason to do that is about the human right to access in our culture. I want to return to the point about decolonization. So with a lot of museums, they have gone to such great lengths to make their spaces welcoming. I'm especially thinking about the the, the British Museum in London, where they have audio description, they have replicas that you can go and feel really great from an accessibility standpoint, but very there's a, there's a lot of discomfort there because of how they come to acquire their collections. How do you think that we as people with disabilities might intervene or intercede in this conversation about decolonizing the institution of a museum? Because it really seems to me as though the conversations about decolonize, decolonization or restitution are happening in one place and the conversation about accessibility and inclusion is happening somewhere else. So how do we bring those two things together? 
That's such a good question because I think they're so aligned with one another because it's really, I mean, the disability rights community too has done so much as far as inclusion across the board, right? So it's about thinking critically and asking important questions, which I think the community has always already done. And I think it's also about calling for museums and galleries to tell multi-layered stories, right? So that it's not just uh, the story that's being put out from, again, those narratives that we have of history, but really thinking about the context and the history of that object and what does that mean for us now and asking those questions. And I think, you know, speaking to like the British Museum, I've also been, you know, to the Louvre. Um, I was lucky enough to go on a delegation tour where we explored accessibility. There's those spaces like that have so much funding. So they have these incredible um setups to be able to encourage not only engagement, but self-guided engagement, which I think is really, really important. Um, but to think about also the fact that to produce sort of a tactile table um, that they have, and I'll speak to my lived experience, which is at the Louvre, where they have these incredibly beautiful uh, 3D printed reliefs of the object, and then ASL interpretation and audio description and other elements that you can engage with, that can be anywhere from $10,000 to $60,000 a table, right? So I'm thinking of organizations like Tactile Studio who um, are really making quite a bit of money from this. And so it's challenging then when we try and transfer that to a space that's much more of a not-for-profit because in Europe there's also really incredible um, uh just uh, thinking through the the politics behind it too. Like we were funded for that delegation through the ministry. So the arts and culture ministry in France provides so much funding. And then in that case also doesn't necessarily do any community consultation. So going through the spaces and not necessarily seeing people present. So there's that element. But then as you've said, there's the element of thinking about where have these objects come from? Why are they here? And I think that there's um, that history needs to be addressed. And the more we have those conversations, um, the more likely it is we can see, for instance, the Elgin Marbles go back to uh, to their home and be able to be in situ because context is what's important about objects um, and understanding where they're coming from. And I think that that's really the way that we can start deconstructing some of these systems. Melissa, in the last 30 seconds or so. Tell us a little bit more again about the workshops. Let us know how we sign up and when and how they're taking place. So again, it's a course that I'm teaching as a sessional instructor at OCADU. So there will be students in this and I'm looking for volunteers who have lived experience with um, being blind or vision impaired to help us think through the design challenge. Um, we start September 8th. So the class usually runs from 6.30 to 9.30. Um, and we're excited to hear from people. I'm, you know, please reach out to me via email. And my email is melissa.smith at ago.ca. Um, and hoping I don't get a deluge of people, but I will do my best to get back to you in a timely fashion. Um, and I will also say that we do have multi-sensory uh, videos that were produced um, last year from the previous class that I taught that are available on our website. So if you want to go and search multi-sensory museum, you'll see a whole bunch of different videos that students have produced that have audio descriptions, sounds, 
calls for engaging with scents that you might find around your house. And we also have some fabulous art educators as well, who I'm very grateful to work with regularly, who have created some multi-sensory tours that you can engage with. And we're actually going to be gathering all of that into one place, speaking of web accessibility, to make sure that that is easier to find um, so people can engage digitally and virtually as well. Melissa, it was really fun chatting with you today. Love your enthusiasm and passion for the work. Thanks for taking a bit of time and chatting with us here on The Pulse today. Thank you so much for having me. Melissa Smith is Assistant Curator for Access and Learning at the Art Gallery of Ontario. She's offering a course this fall. It runs from September 8th to December 2nd, and you can email her for details and to sign up. If you missed my conversation with Melissa, you can find the podcast on your favorite podcast platform and don't forget to like rate or subscribe while you're there the technical producers for the pulse are sam robinson and nasreen abdul majid who basically tag teamed it here today andy frank is the manager for ami audio and paul Janine is our technical supervisor thanks a lot for listening stay safe and have a wonderful rest of your day